The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. David Filson, Dr. David Filson, one of our pastors at Christ Pres, good friend, and I love this man. He's going to come and, and bring the word to us this morning. So um, this scripture reading uh, is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. And you've been wanting to do this since you got here, if you haven't already. Um, you know, this is in many ways a passage about comfort. And so if you want to get comfortable, go ahead. I mean, how often do you have the opportunity to come to church and, uh, and push the recline button? So uh, please know it will not bother me in the least. In fact, I would if I was sitting where you are. However, uh, if you happen to drift off, I've got a little friend over here on the side of that fire um, alarm. Spider-Man uh, is there to keep track of anyone who falls asleep during my sermon. That might be a good place to get an Instagram selfie is next to the fire alarm over here because somebody has stuck Spider-Man there. You, you probably uh, know by now the reason that we're abbreviating our service here is because Spider-Man is going to be showing in, uh, in just a little bit. So we have some time constraints. Uh, when my son, who is now 18 going on 19, about to head off to college, when he was about five or six years old, we were uh, laying in bed one night. I was trying to help him go to sleep. And... Uh, and we were talking about the gospel and, and, uh, and praying, and uh, we, were, we were talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and how Jesus rose again from the dead. And he uh, launched into a theological diatribe for me explaining the resurrection of Jesus. And he said to me, he said, Daddy, I know how Jesus rose from the grave. I know why Jesus is alive now. And I said, well, well please tell me. And I was expecting all those Sunday school lessons to come home you know, uh, for, uh, to, to roost. And um, he said, well, Daddy, what happened was they hung Jesus on the cross 
And just as he was about to die, Spider-Man, I kid you not, Spider-Man swung down, rescued him off the cross before any of them could see it. And that's why Jesus is alive today. That was about five or six years old when he told me that. We call it the Spider-Man theory of the atonement. Now, here's the reality. That theory of the atonement is fraught with all kinds of theological um, uh, problems. It, it is. If, if Jesus didn't actually die, if Spider-Man rescued him before, he actually made atonement for us. But here's the reality. I love Spider-Man, and, and so I, I went with it. I subscribed to Spider-Man comics when I was a kid. In fact, I still have several of them. They come in these brown paper wrappers, and um, our family's kind of a nerd family, kind of a culture family, and um, nerd culture family. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going out to Comic-Con in San Diego, the big comic convention out there, and everybody, I see some, I'm getting some witnesses there. In fact, this is because I'm going to be Wolverine when I go, and all, I'm growing my chops out, much to my wife's dismay. She told me, she said, David, you got two weeks after Wolverine, two weeks, and that's going to be gone. Uh, but I'm going to be wearing this for my Wolverine cosplay, but, but we love these kind of things. Um, but this morning, um, we're going to take a few brief minutes to tell um, another story. And the hero of the story is not Spider-Man, but the God-Man. Uh, not a superhero on the pages of a comic book, but a servant found on the pages of the Bible. Uh, in fact, when you turn to the book of Isaiah, there are four songs. I had lovely songs this morning. There are four hymns or four songs in the book of Isaiah. They're known as the servant songs. They're songs about a servant. We, we have the first one here in 42, 1 to 4. In 49, 1 to 6. In chapter 50, 4 to 7. And 52, 13 to 53, 12. Those are four sections in Isaiah that are written very lyrically and they are structured like songs. And Isaiah is teaching us to sing of the divine servant, the Lord Jesus. They are prophetic songs about who Jesus is and what he's going to do for us. Well, in our text this morning, 42, 1 to 9, uh, what appears at first to be a, a precious and heartwarming uh, picture of the way the servant will tenderly care for the needs of the hurting. And it is that. It's actually a war cry. It's actually a war cry. In fact, if you look at chapter 41 for context, let's look at verses 8 to 13. Isaiah says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. The Lord of the covenant will be the strength of his people. And then jump forward just a little bit. Verses 21 to 29 of chapter 41. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell the former things to us, what they are, that we may consider them. And in other words, he's calling out the idols. He's saying, you have all these idols that you are worshiping. Let them stand to account. Let's see what these idols are capable of. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses 
you. You The idols of the pagan nations are doomed to fail. And the idols of my heart and yours, same thing. John Calvin lived from 1509 to 64 in his commentary on Acts chapter 2 said that your heart and mind left to ourselves our hearts, he describes, as fabricum idolorum, a Latin phrase. Fabricum idolorum, it means idol factories. Our hearts are, are idol factories that just crank out the idols. And we bow down to those idols and we demand that they, that they satisfy us. But they can't, pro- they can't deliver what they promise. Right? These are not the words of compromise here in chapter 42. These are not the words of, of postmodern pluralism. These are fighting words. Like the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God. We tear down strongholds and demolish every argument set against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so God is demanding that the idols here step forward, that they prove themselves. And, and in fact, he actually turns the ball, as it were, over to the idols and says, score, if, if you think you can. God is setting forth the inescapability of truth, the irrationality of immorality, the epistemological emptiness of any worldview that does not begin and end with the God of Scripture. And then he ends this passage, chapter 41, behold, they are all a delusion. All the idols of the nations that Israel is tempted to fall down and worship, the idols of my heart, the idols of your heart, he says they're all a delusion in verse 29, but then he follows it in chapter 42, verse 1, From behold, all the idols are a delusion. Behold, my servant. Right? You see the contrast. The idols are a delusion. They are nothing. They are impotent. They are nothing. But behold, my servant, whom I uphold. Charles Simeon lived from 1759 to 1836. He was an English Methodist pastor. And he had a pulpit preached for many years, about 50 years from this one pulpit, and he had carved into the pulpit where only he could see the following words from John 12, 21. Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, I want us to see Jesus, our servant, this morning. I want us to see Jesus and the Missio Dei. Jesus and the Missio Dei. Jesus and the mission of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus is sent by the Father, upheld by him, empowered by the Spirit of God. In other words, Jesus, a servant, is God's overcoming and all-satisfying answer to my idolatry and yours. The world is not left in darkness as to who God is and what he is like. And many, many years ago, remember Dishwalla's song, Tell Me All Your Thoughts on God, because I'd really like to meet her. Or Joan Osborne, What If God Were One of Us, Just a Slob Like One of Us, Just a Holy Rolling Stone, Trying to Make His Way Home. Right? What is God like? Who is God? He, she, or it, whatever it may be. God says, no, I don't want you to be in the dark as to who I am. And so he sends Jesus so that we could see him. Jesus says in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is not the Father, he is the Son, but he reveals to us who the Father is, what he is like. And God is saying, in effect, I will accomplish all my purposes through this one, through this servant. And the the Hebrew word used here for upheld in in verse 1 of 42 is the same Hebrew word used back in chapter 41, verse 10. 
where, where we read that the Lord is going to uphold Israel. You see, Jesus is all that Israel was called to be, yet she refused to be. Follow me here for a second. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, Israel was called to be a life-giving vine to the nations. Life would flow from her to the nations, but she became very insular, very self-focused and refused to do that. And so in chapter 15, verses 1 to 11 of John's gospel, Jesus says, I am now the true vine. And everything Israel was to be in obedience to the Father, I am going to live that out on behalf of of my people. He says, I am the true vine, and he calls you and me uh, to abide in him. And here's the good news of the gospel. When we find ourselves slipping, and maybe you're slipping this morning, we find ourselves stumbling. Abiding in Christ seems like just a distant memory of, of our early excitable days of being a follower of Christ. Maybe you're there right now. Uh, the, the, the good news here, uphold, in chapter 42, verse 1, the, the word in Hebrew is atimach, atimach, and it means to grip fast or to hold on to tightly. The same father who is holding on, upholding, gripping fast Christ holds on to you. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying this, you're held in my hand and I'll never let you go. And no one will snatch you away. And you're held in the Father's hand and he'll never let you go. And no one will snatch you away. Right? Jesus and the mission of God and he comes for us. We, we see here the story of Jesus and the word of God. Look at the last half of the first verse. He will bring forth justice to the nations. You heard Russ read that earlier. Don't, don't think of this justice as merely current modern concerns of social justice, as important as that is, but it's more, so much more. And, and without what this word actually means here in the book of Isaiah, without what this justice of God is all about, current concerns of social justice, listen, will become dictated by various Darwinian utilitarian tactics. Let me say that again. Apart from the justice of God, questions about social justice today and mercy and human dignity, etc., apart from the justice of God, will ultimately be decided by various Darwinian utilitarian tactics. But the gospel offers us so much more. Because the word for justice here, you see it there in chapter 42, verse 1, he will bring forth justice. The word there in the Hebrew is mishpat, mishpat. And this word is central to the passage, to say the least, because we see it in chapter 42, verses 1, verse 3, verse 4. Justice, the justice of God is, is very central to this passage, and it refers to God's word, his decisions, his covenantal purposes, the things that he has promised, right? What he declares to be the truth, the judgment that he renders. Um, Alec Motier, a great commentator, the late Alec Motier, on the book of Isaiah says that the justice of God refers to the result of the trial between God and the idols, between all of the false promises of the idols of the nations and what the God of all creation says is true. 
And so this servant is going to come and bring forth the justice of God. And what that really means is he's going to declare and demonstrate and defend, listen to me, the very epistemological authority of God over every conversation, every question, everything that touches reality in a world that is turned away from that truth. You, you see that here in chapter 41, 28 to 29, 42 verse 1. The nations have turned away from the authority of God over all things, the authority of God and his right to answer all questions, his right to say, here's what is true. Here is the way, walk ye in it. And this servant is going to turn us back to the justice of God, the mishpat of God, the decisions of God, the declarations of God, the very, the very word of God. And he alone can do that, this servant, because he, this servant in Isaiah 42, is the logos of God in John 1.1, 1, 1, the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, he alone can do it because he, this servant, is the word incarnated. And he has come to fulfill every single syllable of the word of God inscripturated. Let me say that again. The word of God incarnated, Jesus, John 1.1, 1, 1, has come to fulfill every last syllable of the word of God inscripturated. We read that, do we not, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that in Jesus all the promises of God find their yes and amen. Right? That, that book in your lap, that, that book on your phone, your device, is the very breath of God according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is theonoustos. It is the breath of God is breathed out by God. You're holding in your lap the very breath of God. It is inspired by God. Jesus gave it to you. And Jesus is the very center of it. And if we would follow in this servant's mission and seeing justice and mercy spread across the globe until the news and the headlines give way to songs of praise, then we're going to steep ourselves in this word. We're going to marinate ourselves in it. Breathe it in like oxygen. Let, let it become like cool water on sore feet, this word. I love the way you're Pastor Russ talks about his desire for biblical literacy. Right? And that may sound kind of like a technical, pedantic phrase, but, but it really comes from a heart of deep love that you know the story of God and the way your story intersects with that. His desire that, that we grow in biblical literacy, marinate in the Scripture, steep ourselves in the Scripture. Right? When this word sets the agenda, then there's going to be freedom, there's going to be liberty, there's going to be mercy, mercy and justice, there's going to be human dignity, there's going to be hope. You don't want to know what it's like to possess superpowers, right? I mean, here we are in a theater. Maybe some of you saw Endgame in this very room. Who knows? You ever, ever wondered, what if I could have any superpower, what would it be? Or if I could be any one of the Avengers, which one would it be, right? We, um, we've been talking about going out to Comic-Con in a couple of weeks, and my daughter and I were talking the other day about uh, all the various cosplays we're going to see out there. Now, for the three or four of you know what cosplaying is, uh, you'll be into this. The rest of you are going to be going, is that some Greek word, cosplay? What does that mean? It's where people get dressed up like their favorite Marvel character or DC or, or you know, Doctor Who or, or Star, whatever, Star Wars, you know. And uh, so you, we're going to go out there. And um, I told my daughter, I said, you know, you're going to see a whole lot of in-game Thors. Now, I'm curious if you've not seen Endgame yet, I'm, I'm about to drop a spoiler, but if you haven't seen Endgame yet, it's your fault, all right? Because it's been out for months, okay? 
So I, I told her, I said, you know, when we go out there, we're, we're going to see a whole lot of fat Thors at, 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 in, at uh, Comic-Con, or what we now know are called bro-Thors, right, bro-Thors. We see a whole lot of fat Thors out there at uh, Comic-Con. And, uh, and she said, yeah, probably so. But, but then, then she, she said, but you know, think about it. All the earlier Thor movies and Avengers movies, can you imagine whoever the girl was that got to oil up Chris Hemsworth's abs for those shirtless shots? They must be thanking Jesus for their life every single day, right? There's a difference between the Thor movies and the other Avengers movies and the in-game Thor. Which superhero would you be? Which, what superpowers would you have? Um, here's superpower. Here is superpower. Pray that this word would go forth uncompromised from every Bible-believing pulpit on earth. I love the fact that Russ prayed earlier for the church meeting down the hall. Pray that this word would go forth from every Bible-believing church on earth. Begin praying that for the city of Nashville and see if God would be pleased to let us witness a spiritual supernova of awakening to the reality and beauty of Jesus Christ. So Jesus in the Missio Dei, Jesus in the Word of God, Jesus in you, Look at verses 2 to 4. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, faithfully bring forth the mishpat, the word of God. He will not grow faint or be discouraged that he, until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Unlike Cyrus of Persia, of whom we read back in 41.25, who comes in trampling everything in his path, Jesus is tender. He does not bust in with swagger, but with sympathy. Hebrews 4.14-16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold unswerving to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The old King James says we do not have a high priest untouched by the feelings of our infirmities. We do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's good news that he doesn't scold you for your weaknesses, but he sympathizes with your weaknesses. But one who is at all points tempted, even as are we, yet was without sin, therefore let us approach boldly the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He left the bosom of his father to be held in the bosom of his mother so that you and I, as the old Puritans would say, could unbosom ourselves before him. Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come to me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. 1 Peter 5, 7, we are told to cast all of our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. Richard Sibbs is an old Puritan, lived from 1577 to 1635. And in 1631, he wrote his most famous book. It was entitled, The Bruised Reed and the Smoking Flax. Um, you know, I, I think when we go back and rediscover the Puritans and see just how in tune they were with the hearts of their congregations, applying the balm of the gospel to the needs of, of their people. I've written things on that. If you're interested in nerding out on that kind of thing, we can talk later and I'll send you some stuff. But this is what he says. The pupil of the eye is very little, yet seeth a great part of heaven at once. A pearl, though little, yet is of much esteem. Nothing in the world is of so good use as the least dram of grace. You know what a dram is? You know what a dram? 
a wee dram of whiskey to warm the toes. A dram um, is one-eighth of a fluid ounce of whiskey or scotch or bourbon, barely enough to get the sides of your bourbon glass wet, and yet Sib says the last little drop, the last little dram of grace is so good. But the good news of the gospel according to Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 is that our Father lavishes his grace upon us because he is rich in mercy, and he is not a miser with his mercy. He's lavish with that grace, lavish with that mercy. Let me ask you, are you about to break? Right? Are you here this morning and you think, I have so many anxieties, I don't even know how to cast them on Jesus. And so you show up here on a Sunday morning looking good, looking good. You got your stuff together. My, my friend Sam Alberry says, tomorrow at church, you can be impressive or you can be honest. But you can't be both. One will make you feel good, but others feel worse. The other will be life-giving to you and life-giving to others. One will make you look really useful to Jesus, the other Jesus truly vital to you. So where are you this morning? You're about to break? Feel like you're about to be snuffed out? Right? Any of you struggling with hard things this morning? Anxieties? Right? If, you, if you could just find rest? You know, here's, here's the thing. I'm just going to go ahead and share my heart with you. It was four years ago today, four years ago today, that I spent the whole day in a hospital room holding my mama, watching her life ebb away. And she died in my arms four years ago today. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Are you about to be snuffed out? Are you, are you numbed out, burned out, weary of the medicating, the fabricating, pontificating, the manipulating, trying to make yourself look impressive, not sure if, if you can keep up this thing called the Christian life, wondering if you should even continue singing Amazing Grace because you fear in your heart of hearts you've already used up your allotment of that, of that grace. And Sib says, the least little dram of grace is the best thing in the world. He goes on to say, Richard Sibbs, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. More mercy in Christ than sin in you. What is the gospel itself but a merciful moderation in which Christ's obedience is esteemed ours and our sins laid upon him, wherein God, from being a judge, becomes our father, pardoning our sins and accepting our obedience, though feeble and blemished, we are now brought to heaven under the covenant of grace by a way of love and mercy. Jesus in the Missio Dei, Jesus in the word of God, Jesus in you, Jesus in the future. Verses 5 through 9, right, it's beautiful. Just, I mean, it's like, it's like we need to pick up a, a pair of 3D glasses on the way in just to get everything that's in verses 5 through 9. Right? It would take a month of Sundays to even begin to do these final verses justice. The God of all creation, the God who gives you every single beat of your heart, says in verse 6 the same things that he says to Jude in chapter 1 of Jude, verse 1 of Jesus. Actually, new chapters, it's just one little letter that you are called, you are loved, you are kept. He stakes his name, right? He stakes his entire name on Jesus following through on the covenant of grace. He stakes his glory on calling you and me from the dungeons of our own makings, calling us to get up off of our knees from bowing down the very idols that we have erected. He calls us to stop sucking down the, the dank sludge of sin that leaves us parched and to taste life in the new creation that he is preparing. And will he make good on this prophecy? Well, he's already fulfilled his words concerning Cyrus in chapter 41. He has fulfilled his words concerning Christ. He is fulfilling them. He ever will. You see, you see the gospel 
in the prophecy of Isaiah takes us to these gospel pictures to my right or to my left. These gospel pictures on the table. How will he rescue us? How will he fulfill all these things? Well, it, it wouldn't be through the Spider-Man theory of the atonement. No matter what my then six-year-old theologian postulated. Remember Charles Simeon? I told you about him just a little bit earlier. Before he was converted, he lived a very privileged party life, we might say, in England. And he was sent to Cambridge to college. And when he entered the university, um, it being a Church of England institution, uh, he was told, as a student, you'll have to take Holy Communion. Well, Charles Simeon, having been raised a nominal Anglican, knew at least enough to know that if he didn't feel his need for Christ, he had better not come to the Lord's table and eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And so he resisted. Yet as a student, it was required that he come to take Holy Communion. So he started thinking about his life. He started thinking about what it meant to follow Christ. He would later recount that Satan himself was more fit to attend Holy Communion than he was. He started reading, he started pursuing the things of the Lord, and he came across a book by a bishop, Thomas Wilson, Instructions for the Lord's Supper. And Simeon says this, but in Passion Week, in Easter Week, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. The thought came into my mind, what, may, may I transfer my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay all of my sins on the sacred head of Jesus, the divine servant. The last of the servant songs in Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12, we read in verses 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have turned away. We have turned every one of us to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of sinners like David Filson, sinners like you and like me. And so I would leave you with this question as Pastor Russ comes to lead us to the Lord's table. Would you lay your sins on the head of another this morning? Pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for this year. Lord, we thank you that um, this one who came to bind up those of us who are at the point of breaking, those of us who feel like our flame is about to be snuffed out, Lord Jesus, that you came to tenderly minister to us and to bind us up and to bear us in your arms. We thank you that these words, tender as they are, are a war cry, that you have come to declare war on everything that would deceive us, that would promise us satisfaction, that would promise us life but cannot deliver. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that this morning we would see you. And we pray even now, as you prepare our hearts to come to the table, that we would indeed taste and see that you are good. For we ask these things in your precious name, Lord Jesus, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen.